Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard. Let's stay Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down in the world, a lot of things to discuss. I hope everybody is being safe. I hope everybody's being responsible. I hope everybody is using common sense. I hope everybody is taking care of themselves. I hope everybody is taking care of those who need to be taken care of. I hope everybody is paying attention, taking heed, showing respect for those who are trying to get our lives back to as normal as possible by taking care of this virus. I hope that you're listening to those who have their best interests in heart. Be safe, be responsible, use some common sense. I know you're going crazy sitting at home. I understand all that kind of stuff. Hey, look, man, I'm going crazy myself. I'm so glad that every once in a while I get to go ahead and pick up somebody because I'm Ubering, put a few dollars in my pocket and get out of the house, trying to get back to doing a little working out in terms of doing a little walking, take a little time to myself, making sure that I'm not in a big group, making sure that I'm keeping my social distance six feet and all those recommendations that the experts has given us to take heed to. So I hope you're doing the same thing here. And I'm just going to uh, talk about what's going on in the world of sports. There's still some things going on in the world of sports. we got the U.S. Olympics, or we got the Olympics being postponed. We've got the NFL free agency, some of the highlights that I want to talk about that. We've got my Georgetown Hoyas that I still want to talk about. I've got my quarterback situation. Some quarterbacks are still looking for jobs. I want to get into that. So there's still a lot of things for us to discuss. So we begin the podcast, of course, uh, as what I mentioned before, was speaking about the U.S. Olympics that is now going to be postponed. First, the announcement was it was going to be postponed. And then later on, it came out and we said, nah, it's going to be it's going to be over, and it's going to be over for this season. The statement from senior IOC official Dick Pound said, on the basis of the information the IOC has, postponement has been decided. The parameters going forward have not been determined, but the games are not going to start on July 24th. That much I know. So my basic question through all this is, damn, man, what took you so long? I mean, for weeks, you've got athletes, you've got governing bodies of sports. They've all made it pretty clear that, hey, look, you know what? This ain't good. We've got a health crisis that we're dealing with. The fact that you're going to try to have an Olympic Games where you're going to have people from all over the globe, not just participating, but coming to watch these events, being in stadiums, being in arenas so close together, that is going to be a world disaster in that situation. So last Sunday, Canada, Australia said thanks for no, but no thanks. They were the first countries to announce that they were not going to be participating in the summer games. Then other countries that were pressuring the IOC to cancel the games. You had the Olympic committees of Norway and Brazil. They issued statements a few days ago to go ahead and postpone the Olympics. And then you had the USA swimming and track and field teams submit letters saying that the game should be postponed for a year. So and everything, it had to be done. The consequences of not having the Olympics, yeah, I get it. I understand it. The athletes have been preparing for years to compete in the summer games of 2020. 
But you know what? They're not getting the right opportunity. They're not getting the best opportunity because if you just take the United States, for instance, the U.S. Olympic Training Centers in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in Lake Placid, New York, they've shut the doors down. They're not open for business. So if you're one of these elite athletes who are trying to maximize your potential to try to win the medal, and in essence, to really build your brand and up your financial situation and do what's good for you, you're not getting the fair shake. You're not getting the fair opportunity to do that because of the coronavirus. These training centers, and I'm not just talking about the United States, even though I mentioned Colorado Springs and Lake Placid, New York. So you have to imagine with countries like Italy, North Korea, Korea and China, and other of these countries who are under, some are under martial law and others restrictions to their sociability and their places to go and everything. You can understand that they're not getting the exact training either. They're not getting the proper training either. So I want to see the Olympics. I'm quite sure you do too and you do too. I want to see Olympics where everybody gets the best opportunity to train. Now, yes, they're always going to have a situation where an athlete, a performer or whatever is always going to be better because they're more talented. They're more dedicated. They're more passionate. There's always other things going into a situation where everything can't be 50-50. Everything can't be even when they go out there and participate for these championships, participate for these medals to honor your country. I get that. But just the basic fundamental way of training being shut down the facilities all across the world being shut down, not giving these very talented athletes the opportunity to train, just leads me to say, you know what? This is something where this needs to be postponed. Don't cluster fuck it together in terms of trying to rush everything. I understand Japan in terms of what the Olympics can do for them. For two weeks, the nation, the world, the eyes will be on them. Great propaganda tool. For Japan, especially everything that's been going on, the civil struggle, the civil rights struggle that's been happening in that country, it's, it's, the Olympics would be a great platform for them to kind of show what the country is all about and put it in a more positive light, whether that be through force, maybe be that be that through coercion, sleight of hand, sleight of eye, who knows. But it would give them the opportunity to do that. Now that opportunity is being taken away, but you also have to remember is only being taken away for a year. The Olympics are still coming back to Tokyo. They're not going anywhere else. The Olympics will still, the Summer Olympics will still have the opportunity to be hosted in Japan, except it's going to be in 2021, not in 2020, which is the right thing to do. So I get it, man. You have issues with broadcasting rights. I'm quite sure that the networks paid a lot of money. So they can go ahead and show these games. You have the volunteers over in those countries and from other countries who have really earmarked that time and place for them to go ahead and do their things. That's not going to be happening now. The numerous disruptions to daily working life that come with hosting an Olympics, I'm quite sure that that has to be refigured and reevaluated and all those things. But we're even speaking about a situation where even if the Olympics, even if those who are running the Olympics, even if Dick Pound and the others said, okay, we're going to go ahead with the Olympics in July, we're still going to have a situation where global travel may not even exist in July. So how are you going to get all of these athletes from all of these other countries to fly over to your country when there could be a ban or where there could be those who just have enough common sense to say, man, I'm not getting on a plane of a virus. We don't know what's going to be happening. We don't know where this pandemic's going to end. We don't know what's going to be happening with the coronavirus. I mean, we're talking about the situations here where 
in America, they're discussing if we don't take this seriously, if we don't, you know, take this with the respect that is given, if we listen to the idiot that's in the White House right now, I mean, hell, we could be having millions of people infected with the virus and almost millions of people dying. So we're talking about coming out in July and we're talking about travel, and traveling and flying in airplanes. Man, we don't even know what's going to be happening next month. We don't even know what's going to be happening for two weeks from now. Some folks say that, you know what, and I say folks, when I say folks, I'm talking about experts or those who are studying the virus. Some people say that the worst is yet to come. Others say that, you know, it might flatten out pretty soon. We don't know. We exactly don't know. We are flying blind when it comes to to this virus. So I get it. I understand that these athletes are itching. They're ready. They want to go out there and they want to perform. They want to go ahead and show off their skills. They want to go ahead and with the spotlight on them for the first time, only time, sometimes for a lot of these folks, for they get this one shot, one shining moment, shall we say. I understand that, you know what, you might be bummed a little bit because it was taken away from you as of right now. But A, you're going to get that opportunity. Just wait 365-something days. And B, let me tell you something, man. Your health is a lot worth, it's worth a lot more than a medal. So, especially if you're married, you have kids or whatever. So, I understand the angst and I understand the disappointment. And I understand the frustration and the disappointment that some of these athletes might be going through right now. But, man, be smart, man. Use your brain. And for the, I mean, it took them a while to finally get to the point where this is no longer going to be happening. Well, I'm quite sure they wanted to see if there was any avenue that they could go down to where these games could participate. But you're talking about too many countries. You're talking about too many athletes. You're talking about too many circumstances that are up in the air right now for you to say, you know what, we're going to still go ahead and have these Olympics. Put it on ice, put it on hold for a year, come back, revisit the situation, and then we'll go on from there. World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things getting down that I want to talk about today in the world of sports, in the world of world NFL free agency. The highlights because of the events that's taken place with the coronavirus throughout our planet. This free agency, I feel, this offseason, I feel, is much more important than the draft. We've always said with NFL football, you know, the way that you get better, the way that you build championship teams, you don't go out and you don't try to win the free agency battle. You can take a look at the Washington Snyder skins for years, whether they went out and got themselves Albert Hainsworth or Josh Norman or anybody else, these guys and Daniel Snyder would always quote unquote win the free agency game and always finish five and eleven or six and ten or three and thirteen. You build your championships through great scouting and drafting. And you don't build your championships. A championship is not built based on your first round pick, based on your second round pick. A lot of times, the NFL, or many of these times, the way that these teams win NFL championships and become elite 
uh, elite and become contenders for a long time, building their strong foundation. It's on the draft picks that you make in the third round, in the fourth round, in the seventh round, in the eighth round, in the unrestricted uh, free agency that don't get drafted, the players who don't get drafted, who you invite to come in and participate and try to make the team. Those are the guys that go ahead and build that foundation for that first-round quarterback or for that first-round wide receiver or for that second-round running back to stand on for them to do their thing. Patrick Mahomes, as great as he is, the first-round draft pick, ain't winning the Super Bowl, is not winning the Super Bowl, let me correct my grammar, without the strong play, without the foundation that was built by Andy Reid and those who were drafting these guys, the players that they had in the later rounds, the players that they drafted in the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh round. Without those guys, if you miss on those guys because you're so busy trying to get that franchise potential quarterback or this high draft pick, you're not going to be very successful. I don't give a damn who that is. All you need to do is ask the Indianapolis Colts who wasted pick after pick after pick and trying to build their foundation after they drafted Andrew Luck. Now you see that the that Ryan Grigson, the GM of the Indianapolis Colts and that organization, basically ruined the opportunity for Andrew Luck to have an opportunity to be one of the better quarterbacks who's ever played this game or one of the better quarterbacks who's played in a generation. The beating that he took because of the ineptitude of the general manager to build a team around him, not just with first-round draft pick, but also with second-day draft picks and unsigned free agents that ruined the Colts' opportunity, their chances to be a strong, contending, Super Bowl-possible team for years and years to come because of the brutality that Andrew Luck had to endure in his years as quarterback with the Indianapolis Colts. So this offseason, it's very, very difficult because this season, it's all about, you know what, we're going to see the, the, the main thing is all about the free agencies or the free agents. And when you have guys like Jadavion Clowney and Jameis Winston and Bobby Anderson, who just signed with the Carolina Panthers, and Brashad Perryman and Jason Peters, the offensive tackle for Philadelphia, and Ndamukong Kinsu, I mean, these guys normally would not be the guys that, those guys would be mainly the icing on the cake. Those would be the helpers. But now, because of what's been happening with the coronavirus, the fact that, you know what, the draft is going to be more of a crapshoot than ever, because now, because of these facilities being closed, because of social distancing, because of the virus, guess what? A Tua Tunga Bailoa is not going to be able to come into an organization and sit down and go to the board and draw out plays, and the coaches are not going to be able to quiz him. Okay, now if this happens, what are you going to do with that? If that happens, what are you going to do with this? They don't have the opportunity because of the coronavirus for these teams who are interested in a player like a Tua Tunga Bailoa to go and speak with him, to go and see him perform in person. Everything is going to have to be through Skype. Everything is going to have to be through Facebook Live. Everything is going to have to be through digital. They're not going to get a chance to poke and prod and see this guy up close. It's almost like buying a car. You know, if you can't buy, you know, do you buy a car? If you don't go ahead and take a look at it, if you don't go ahead and drive it a little bit, of course you don't, for the most part, if you're smart, if you have common sense. It's a lot easier in making the decision of what you need to buy of what you're going to get if you have a chance to see it up close, if you have a chance to sit in it, drive on it, drive in it, excuse me, with these draft picks, especially those who might have some questions, whether it be physical or character issues, these organizations, these franchises are not going to get a real opportunity to go ahead and see if this is something that we really want to get into. 
in terms of placing millions upon millions of dollars, especially if you're talking about someone, and I hate going back to this guy as an example, but I'm going to because Tua is a guy who had franchise quarterback written all over him, but there is the issue of his injuries. So we don't know. We don't know his medicals. We don't know how he looks up, up close. We don't know. And again, if a coach wants to get in there and quiz them on the board and have drawn up plays in which these quarterbacks do when they go visit these organizations and the franchises, well, that's a huge blow. And then again, it relies back on the organizations to maybe dip deeper into the guys that they do know. You know Jadavion Clowney. You know Jameis Winston. You know Jason Peters. You know Ndamukong Sue. You know what these guys can do in the NFL because some of these guys have been doing it for 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 years. Now, I'm not saying that it's an exact science in terms of what they're going to be getting with these free agents, but at least you have some idea. I mean, a lot of these teams who are trying to recruit these free agents, they've actually played against these guys. These offense and defensive coordinators have schemed against these guys. There's a lot of tape on these guys. There's a lot of film on these guys. There's a lot written in the book about these guys compared to what you're going to be trying to do drafting college uh, players. So this free agent see in the NFL coming up is going to be very, very important. So when I take a look at someone like a Jadavion Clowney who last uh, season played for the Seattle Seahawks, this is from Aaron Wilson of the Houston Chronicle. It was that uh, the Miami Dolphins were interested. And the Dolphins, according to Wilson of the Houston Chronicle, they discussed a $17 million annual average deal at one point in a process with Clowney, but he didn't accept. So it reports here that Jadavion is aiming for somewhere around the $20 million range. But, of course, as free agency goes along, he could wind up signing for less of a shorter or, or a shorter deal. Um, the most anyone has reported, the Seahawks have offered somewhere around $18.5 million. Several, several reports, one repeated again on Monday by former Seahawks quarterback Jake Heaps on 710 ESPN Seattle, he said the team's initial offer was 13.5. Hey, look, man, I, you know what? If I'm an organization, if I'm running an organization, I'm signing Jadavion Clowney to a two-year deal with one-year guaranteed money because he, the man is just too damn injury-prone. He's coming off an injury again. He had a sports hernia last season. Now, in this offseason, he had core muscle surgery, whatever that means. So because of the shutdown, because of the fact that teams can't Go ahead and take a look at these players because of the coronavirus. They don't know. These teams exactly don't know what they're getting with Jadavion Clowney. So if you take a look at the history of injury to this guy, I mean, this guy played through a sports hurting at South Carolina and had surgery in June of 2014. Then in 2014, he had microfracture surgery. Just think of Brandon. Oh, my goodness. The guy who played for Portland, Brandon, Brandon Roy. Just think about him when you're talking about a guy playing football bone on bone. If a guy couldn't do it in basketball, what you make? What makes you think that a guy can hold up and be effective in football, especially being an edge rusher who relied on such uber-athleticism as Jadavion Clowney? So in 2014, the man had microfracture surgery. Then he missed the final five games of the season dealing with compl complications from his surgery in September to repair a torn meniscus in his knee. Then in 2016, he underwent arthroscopic surgery on his left knee. After the 2017 season, he had another surgery on his knee, arthroscopic surgery. 
Then we come back and think, okay, well, you know what? In Seattle this past season, he only had three sacks. Yeah, he had 41 quarterback uh, pressures, which put him in the top 15, but three sacks? 21 solo tackles in just 13 games? And you take a look at Clowney throughout his career. He's never had a season with double-digit sacks. He's never played an entire season all of his career except for one season. If I'm a team that's going to be offering money and he wants $20 million, I'm not giving that man $20 million. No fucking way. I think the majority of these teams are, are, are singing the same song I am. You ain't getting $20 million. An edge pass rusher who's only, had, who's only recorded three sacks his latest season and has never had double-digit sacks in his career, a guy who was normally the number one draft pick, I'm not giving that guy anything except for a two-year deal, one-year guaranteed. Because for the most part now, he's nothing more than a situational pass rusher. Now, most people are sitting there talking about the, be the best fit for the New York Jets because they're building themselves a strong defensive line. That might be fine, but if I'm Jadavion Clowney, if I'm recruiting a Jadavion Clowney, if I'm trying to get the best out of a Jadavion Clowney, I'm not putting him down as an everyday rusher or every down rusher. No way, no how, no way. That man is going to be, again, getting himself a two-year deal. I can't risk it because of his injury situation. I just can't. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Jameis Winston, any news? Any news from you or from you or from you? Anybody? Anybody? No news about any potential suitors for Mr. 30 for 30? Um, no potential openings for him to sign. As the starting quarterback, I'm taking a look around at the league. I'm taking a look at these teams, and I'm saying to myself, okay, because I'm a Jameis Winston realist, but I'm also a guy who thinks that Jameis Winston can still be an effective starting quarterback. I don't think he's ever going to get to the level of a Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes or anything like that, but, but I think as far as talent is concerned, and I think as age is concerned, I'm not going to be giving up on Patrick Mahomes. I'm not going to be giving up, excuse me, on Jameis Winston. So I'm taking a look at these teams. Now, maybe it's a situation where Jameis Winston is still out there giving off the vibe that, you know what, I think that I'm a starting quarterback. I expect to be a starting quarterback. And most importantly, I want to be paid the guarantee money of that of a starting quarterback and maybe there's a lot of teams saying no 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 man we'll bring you in to compete and we'll bring you in to see what you've got but we're not going to pay you like a starting quarterback fuck no so maybe it's a situation where once Winston if he is making those type of demands if he can come down on his demands for money I'm quite sure there'd be some teams that might uh, have interest in Winston but I'm just sitting here taking a look Again, there's 17 teams that have already have a projected starting quarterback who makes at least $20 million per year. You've got Aaron Rodgers with the Green Bay Packers, now Tom Brady with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Kirk Cousins with the Minnesota Vikings, Ben Roethlisberger with the Pittsburgh Steelers, you've got David, Derek Carr with the Las Vegas Raiders, you've got Phillip Rivers with the Indianapolis Colts, Drew Brees with the New Orleans Saints, Carson Wentz with Philadelphia Matthew Stafford with Detroit, Russell Wilson with Seattle, Jimmy Garoppolo with San Francisco, Ryan Tannehill with Tennessee, uh, Dick Foles after that trade was made with the Chicago Bears, Dak Prescott hadn't gotten paid like he should be getting paid, but he's still making more than 20 mil with the Dallas Cowboys, and of course Teddy Bridgewater, the newest 
acquisition to play quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. He's making somewhere around the neighborhood of $20-plus million a year. So right there, you're talking about a situation where, look, Green Bay doesn't need a starting quarterback. Neither does Tampa Bay, of course, and Minnesota and Pittsburgh and San Francisco and Seattle and Detroit and Philadelphia, New Orleans. So, of course, if Jameis Winston is looking for an opportunity, looking for a place to sincerely compete or start for the 2020 season, if it starts on time in September, well, I just named you right there. What, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. There's 16 teams right there who don't need his services. So, so that's damn near half the league. Then you take a look at teams like the Washington Snyder Skins and Arizona and Baltimore, Buffalo, Cleveland, Denver, the Jets, the Giants, Jacksonville. These teams have starting quarterbacks that are either looking to be or projected to be franchise quarterbacks or being groomed to be franchise quarterbacks, or they're already under rookie deal, which means that if these guys can perform even halfway decently, these franchises will have some other places that they can address on their football team because they'll have the money because a guy, say, for instance, like Daniel Jones of the New York Giants or a Drew Locke of the Denver Broncos or uh, Kyler Murray of the Arizona Cardinals or right now Deshaun Watson of the Houston Texans, you're not, they're not getting paid buku money. They're still on their contract, their rookie contract. So these guys or these franchises can go ahead and fill in what they need to do, similar to what the Seattle Seahawks did when Russell Wilson came out the box and was a guy who was dynamic, a guy as a quarterback could win you a Super Bowl. It gave the Seattle Seahawks the opportunity to go ahead and build themselves the Legion of Boom defense and to take care of some of the weaknesses on their football team while they still had the money because Russell Wilson was still on his rookie quarterback uh, salary. Jameis Winston is not going to go in there demanding to be the starting quarterback and mess up the flow, mess up the <clears throat> mess up this, this, this salary sheet of such teams as Washington and Baltimore and Buffalo and Cleveland. And then again, what, Jameis Winston is going to be starting over Deshaun Watson? He's going to be starting over Josh Allen? He's going to be starting over Baker Mayfield? He's going to be starting over Kyler Murray? He's going to be starting over Daniel Jones? He's going to be starting over, say, for instance, a Patrick Mahomes? Of course not. So if Jameis Winston is looking for an opportunity to start, those are 10 other franchises who won't need his services. So now we're speaking about 26, 27 teams who don't match what Jameis Winston might be looking for. Then you go to teams like the Cincinnati Bengals, the San Diego Chargers, excuse me, San Diego, damn, fuck me, the Los Angeles Chargers, the Miami Dolphins. They're all projected to take a quarterback in the first round, whether it be Cincinnati drafting Joe Burrow out of LSU, Miami maybe moving up to see what they can do to get an opportunity to draft Tua Tungabailoa, the L.A. Chargers drafting someone like a Justin Hebert. So now you take a look at the situation that Jameis Winston is looking at. Any teams that need a backup quarterback, any teams that need a quarterback, the only team now I can think that might need a quarterback is the New England Patriots, who just lost themselves Tom Brady, and Bill Belichick is really going to put up with someone who threw 30 interceptions. Bill Belichick is going to be pulling up with a guy who since 2015 has thrown 88 interceptions. Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniel are going to be putting up with that. I don't think so. It could be intriguing. But to start the 2020 season, if it starts on time, that's who the New England Patriots are going to be dealing with. And the situation, even if they did go ahead and get themselves Jameis Winston, 
that those guys would have the opportunity to work with him even though OTAs and others would be canceled. So basically, in a short amount of time, you would have to get Jameis Winston up to speed to what Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick uh, wants out of these guys and try to correct some of his flaws, try to correct some of these decision-making problems that he's had while he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers without an offseason to start from the bottom and work their way up? No, I don't think. In this situation, for starting in 2020, don't think that's going to happen. Now, look, Belichick has one of the things I will say about uh, Bill Belichick and the quote-unquote Patriot wave. How much of that was the Tom Brady way? How much of that was Bill Belichick? It was Bill Belichick's way, and he just found a fantastic, perfect match to follow what he was doing in Tom Brady. But Belichick has never been scared to take a player with some baggage from other teams. If you really think about his career being the coach of the New England Patriots. Now, a lot of these guys have been wide receivers. They, there's Randy Moss and Antonio Brown and Chad Johnson, a Muhammad Sanu or J.J. Stokes. But there's been Corey Dillon. He took an opportunity to maybe see what Tim Tebow was all about. And, uh, Chad Brown coming over from the time, I believe, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So James Harrison. So Bill Belichick is not shy if someone has some talent to go ahead and take a shot with this guy. But I don't think he would do that with, I don't think that he would do that with uh, James Winston, especially if you take a look at the current New England quarterback situation right now. From all reports, they're very high on Jared Stidham, and he's going to get the first opportunity possibly to go ahead and see about acquiring the starting quarterback position for this upcoming season. And then, they signed Brian Hoyer this past week on a one-year, $2 million deal. So I don't even know in this situation where Jameis Winston could even fit in, especially if Jameis Winston is looking for uh, money, a payday, somewhere around $24, $25, $26, $28 million per year. I don't know where he goes from that. So I'm trying to take a look at teams that might need a quarterback or a backup quarterback. I mentioned New England. The other team that came out to me was Pittsburgh and, and, and Dallas. Those were the other two teams. So Jameis has his choice between the Cowboys, Pittsburgh, New England, maybe Jacksonville, maybe, possibly. He is from that area, from Alabama, so he is in proximity to that area. He did play his collegiate ball at Florida State where they won a national championship, so possibly, maybe, he can go and compete for a um, starting quarterback position in Jacksonville, but we don't know. We don't know right now. I take a look at someone like the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, you know, Ben Roethlisberger, we all, I'm, I'm thinking, once Tom Brady left the New England Patriots, the next thing for me, okay, who's that next guy? You have Peyton Manning, or if you take a look at the, if you take a look at the quarterbacks, like a, like a Brett Favre, and then it came down to a Peyton Manning, and then it came down to a Tom Brady this season, I'm thinking to myself, what iconic quarterback Who's the next iconic quarterback for a franchise to pull a move like Tom Brady did or to pull a move like a Peyton Manning or a Brett Favre or a Joe Montana? What what quarterback is next in line for that? If you take a look at what he means to the organization, the fact that there's a possibility that they could be going in a different direction if things don't go right, a possibility where this guy is going to be a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest of the generation to play during his time and he still has some football left, and maybe because of some friction or maybe because of some disagreements or maybe just because he's been with that team for so long, they might be moving in a different direction that this quarterback might want to try a new flavor. This quarterback might want to take up another challenge. The 
name that came to mind for me was Ben Roethlisberger. Now I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that this is going to be happening tomorrow. I'm not saying that Ben Roethlisberger is looking to part ways to end the relationship with the Pittsburgh Steelers, nor am I saying that the Pittsburgh Steelers want to end the relationship with Ben Roethlisberger. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, eventually in this league, and you know this better than anybody, in this league, if you play long enough, eventually a team is going to have no more use for you. A team that drafted you, a team that you've played for, a team that you're going in the Hall of Fame with, a team that you've won Super Bowl with, a team that has you synonymous with the organization and the franchise. Eventually, if you play long enough, you're going to be going somewhere else. It took Tom Brady, what, 20-plus years before the New England Patriots and him decided that they needed to end this working relationship. You go your way, we'll go our way. Eventually, it happens. Peyton Manning, because of a neck injury, the Colts tanking that year to draft Andrew Luck. They got Andrew Luck, a guy who was the highest-rated prospect coming out of that draft since John Elway, a guy who was supposed to be that next great franchise Hall of Fame quarterback. Because of that situation, it was like, Peyton, we love you, but because of your age, because of your injury history, and because of the opportunity that we have now to go fresh, to go young, to go with someone who is projected to have the type of career that rivals yours, we're going to have to go ahead and let you go. It was the same thing with San Francisco with Joe Montana. Joe Montana was injured, missed a lot of the season. Steve Young came in, played well. He was younger. They were like, Joe, time for you to go. 16 seasons with the San Francisco 49ers. It was nice knowing you, but there's your door. We love you. We'll see you in the Hall of Fame and all those type of things, but you're no longer employed with this organization. Bye-bye. Same thing with Green Bay. The list goes on and on and on eventually. And that's not just for quarterbacks. I mean, for every football player. I mean, heaven sakes alive. Emmitt Smith ended his career with the Arizona Cardinals. Jerry Rice ended his career with the Seattle Seahawks, or Denver Broncos, one of those two, after moving on to the Oakland Raiders, after moving on from the San Francisco 49ers. Why? Because there were just too many good, young wide receivers on that team. They were moving in a different direction. Bill Walsh wasn't there. Steve Young was gone. Joe Montana was gone. The group Ronnie Lott, Roger Craig, all of the teammates that Jerry Rice won championship championships with that were synonymous with winning and the culture of the 49ers during that time and era, they were all gone. It was time for the 49ers during that time to move in a different direction. And even though Jerry Rice wasn't washed up by any means, especially that first year when he played with the Raiders, got them to the Super Bowl, what was a vital cog of the offense in helping Rich Gannon become the MVP of the league and getting those guys to the Super Bowl. It was time for that relationship between the San Francisco 49ers and Jerry Rice, it was time for that relationship to end. So I'm thinking moving on down the road here, and I'm thinking to myself, who was the next quarterback? Who was the next football player in the next two to three, four years that has the potential to do the same thing that Tom Brady did with the New England Patriots? They take a look at Ben Roethlisberger. So because of that, whether it be two years, three years. Roethlisberger's always been this guy about, well, you know, I'm going to take things year by year, and I might retire, and I might not. If you catch him on a Monday, he might be done with the sport. You catch him on a Tuesday, he might say he wants to play till he's 80. Who knows what Ben Roethlisberger? Nothing, nothing, just human. You know, some days he feels awesome, some days he doesn't, especially after everything that he's accomplished. But if you're Pittsburgh and you see 
that your backup quarterbacks are Mason Rudolph, Devin the Duck Hodges, and Paxton Lynch. Remember Paxton Lynch? Another guy that Joe, uh, that John Elway thought that he could turn into, I don't know, John Elway. But if you take a look at those quarterbacks on the roster right now, you see the complete and utter disaster that was the quarterback play the previous season when Roethlisberger went down. And at his age and the injuries that he sustained, there's no guarantee that he's going to continue to play 16 games and start all those games. And also with the responsibility that many times that he dropped back some passes, the fact that, you know what, we there should be a situation right now if you're Pittsburgh, to go ahead and talk to Jameis and say, look, man, you know what? We, we're not going to pay you the type of money that you might want, but we can give you an incentive-laden contract and we can put in parameters there for you to get paid if you become the quarterback. And if you do become the quarterback, if you accomplish these goals, you can get paid this amount of money. But if I'm Pittsburgh, I take a serious look right now at Jameis Winston because, again, Two, three, four years down the road, I don't, I don't trust Ben Roethlisberger. I trust him for this season. He said he's going to play for the 2020 season if there is a 2020 season starting on time. I'll trust Ben Roethlisberger for that. I'll trust his commitment. I'll trust his dedication. I'll trust uh, his his passion for the game and helping the Pittsburgh Steelers do what all they can. But beyond that, I don't know. I don't know what Roethlisberger is going to do. And here's the point: Roethlisberger doesn't know either. He could be a serious injury away from him saying, you know what, man, fuck this. I'm tired of rehabbing. I'm tired of going back to the grind. I'm just tired. I got my wife. I got my kids. I got my life. I got my money. I got my legacy. What do I need to go ahead and do this for? I mean, hell, maybe Roethlisberger sees how much money Tony Romo's making at the booth and say, well, shit, why can't I just go ahead and do that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just saying, maybe there's other avenues in life that he can go down that he's like, you know what, now's the time. If... If, and I'm just playing the if game, I'm just playing the what if game. If the situation arises after the 2020 season that a, what, near 40-year-old Ben Roethlisberger who's had a multitude of injuries says, you know what, man, I'm done. I don't want to be Tom Brady and play until I'm 45. I don't want to be Drew, be Drew Brees and start and keep playing in my 40s. I'm, I'm done. I'm good. So if I'm the Steelers, James Winston is definitely on my radar. Without question, without a doubt. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I might be the last guy who, outside of his mama, outside of his family members, outside of his college and high school coach, outside of his family friends, outside of his agent, I might be the only guy who doesn't know Jameis Winston who is still a fan of Jameis Winston. And I'm, I'm not saying that Jameis Winston 
is the guy right now who can lead a team to a Super Bowl. I'm not saying that Jameis Winston is a guy who can be in the same class as of right now with a Russell Wilson or a or a um, Drew Brees or a Lamar Jackson or a Patrick Mahomes. I'm not saying anything like that, but I still believe. I really do. I still believe in Jameis Winston. And I understand, look, the, the, the warts are there. The concerns are there. Is Winston always going to be this type of player? Everybody, hey, he went through Bruce Arians, a guy who was a quarterback coach and 30 interceptions. And, I mean, this is not a situation where he went to a dysfunctional organization. I mean, we say what you want to about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the past or whatever. But, I mean, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are not the Cleveland Browns they were last season, okay? They weren't the train wreck of an organization. They had a functional coach. They had a very good coach. They had a pretty good team around them. They had weapons for Jameis Winston. So this was a situ- This was not a situation during his career in Tampa Bay that the organization failed Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston failed the organization, which is the reason why he's no longer employed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Just not not just with the things that he did on the field, but some of the things in the in the immaturity that was shown that was uh, off the field also. So moving forward. Jameis Winston has to realize, and I'm quite sure that he does, I don't know, I haven't talked to uh, JW, but I'm quite sure that he realizes that uh, some of the roadblocks that were put in front of him on his path to succeed was placed there by him and by his own misdoings and by his own mischievous nature and by his own indiscretions and by his own lack of professionalism and maturity. So one of the things that I saw last season in games was, you know, because before when he was with Florida State with the crab legs nonsense and everything, and, oh, I'm sorry, and this, that, and the other, and I've got to get better. I mean, Jameis always talked a good game. Jameis didn't need to have his agent write him a write him a speech for him to go up and say, yes, I am sorry I was wrong. I never meant to do that. I will change my ways, and I am sorry. It was Totally my fault. Really? Yes, it was. So, fuck off. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. Jameis Winston always seemed sincere about, hey, you know what, I want to try to do better. I want to try to get better. And he blamed alcohol a little bit for some of the things that he got into that weren't good. You know, right, man, whatever. Look, he's 20, the man's 26 years old. <clears throat> I understand that uh, in the situation that he's in, you know what? You're making millions of dollars. You're supposed to be the face of a multi-million billion dollar franchise. You're representing a community. You're representing a state. You're representing a city. All of those things, because of those things, because of those responsibilities, whether you're Johnny Manziel, whether you're Baker Mayfield, whether you're Jamarcus Russell, whether you're Jameis Winston, no matter, age really can't play that much into a factor in terms of giving as in terms of, well, okay, no big deal. No, 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 no. Situation like that, you got to grow up. You got to grow up fast if you want to have those responsibilities. And Jameis Winston, so how much of, you know, I'm sorry and I was young, should we really put into the stew when we're starting to serve the dish of does Jameis Winston, should Jameis Winston, is there hope for Jameis Winston to become a franchise quarterback, a Super Bowl winning quarterback? And many people point to, him and Brett Favre and the interceptions that he threw the first five years are comparable maybe to Peyton Manning and what he did his first couple of years in Indianapolis. But the only thing I will say, and they even point to Brett Favre, the fact that if it wasn't for Mike Holmgren, if he was staying in there in 
it was in, uh, in uh, Atlanta with Jerry Glanville at the head coach. We really didn't give a damn too much about him or his quarterback play and that rally bunch around him that Brett Favre might have never become Brett Favre. I'm quite sure Brett Favre was the first one who said, who would raise his hand and say, yeah, you know what, if it wasn't for Green Bay and Mike Holgram taking a chance on me, I might have drank my way right out of the league at that time. There was no way that even Brett Favre could even be conjured up in anyone's mind about being an all-time great, about being a Hall of Famer, about being a three-time MVP and Super Bowl champion and all those things. That was easily on my way. I was easily going to drink my way out of the league until I was given a lifeline by Mike Holmgren, Ron Wolf, and the Green Bay Packers. Maybe this is the situation <clears throat> with Jameis. The fact that whether he goes to a strong, stable organization like the Pittsburgh Steelers or maybe goes and learns the Patriot way with the New England Patriots with a backup quarterback or maybe a situation where he goes to the Cowboys. I don't know about I don't know about the Cowboys being a place where someone resurrects his career and gets his moral standard higher, but basically, basically what I'm saying is, is that is there anybody else out there willing and able not only to go ahead and employ Jameis Winston as a potential starting quarterback or at least be a quarterback on the roster, does the organization, does the offensive coordinator, does the head coach, does the quarterback coach, does this, is there somebody in there that can help fix some of the deficiencies, the mental mistakes on the field that Jameis Winston makes? Because, look, man, his 30 interceptions last year were outstandingly ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the 30 interceptions were the highest since 1988. In fact, there were six more, he threw six more interceptions then Aaron Rodgers, Carson Wentz, Russell Wilson, and Tom Brady combined in their 64 starts. The player with the second most interceptions last season in the NFL was 21. Jameis threw 30. And you also have to have the situation, you also have to factor in the point that, yep, 30 interceptions, 20 other one, 21 other passes he threw were potential interceptions that were dropped. So we're speaking about a guy who conceivably, if they would just would have let him go and say, fuck it, interceptions be damned, just go out there and keep slinging Jameis, this was a guy who could have easily, easily thrown around 40 to 42 interceptions. 30 interceptions were caught. 20 potential, 21 potential interceptions were dropped. I mean, this is like Ted Bundy talking about he killed 36 people. Yep, yeah, 36 people that we know of. I'm quite sure there's 50, 60, 70 others that he killed that we don't even know about. Same with Gary Ridgway. Same with Wayne Williams. Same with John Paul Knowles. Same with every other serial killer. They never give you the exact number. You think Joe Rifkin just killed 17 prostitutes in New York City back in the day? You think David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, son of Sam just shot that many people and that's it? You think that John Wayne Gacy only buried 36 people in his crawl space? No, I'm quite sure there's a lot more. There's a lot more that we don't know about. What's the point? The point is, hey, if I don't get a serial killer reference in my podcast, exactly what am I doing? And the fact that, you know what, 30 interceptions doesn't even tell the whole tale of how atrocious his decision-making, Jameis Winston's decision-making was. When you speak about there could have been 21 potential other interceptions, bringing the total to 51 if everything was uh, copacetic and hit on the right mark. And then you take into account, he fumbled 12 times. And five were recovered by, by the other team. So we're talking about Jameis Winston in one season, 
turning the ball over through fumble or interception 35 times. 35 times. You can't, that's unacceptable. That's inexcusable. That's just, you know, I mean, it's just. But yet I'm still on Jameis Winston Island. I'm still, I still believe that Jameis Winston eventually can become that guy, can become that starting quarterback. I believe, I believe, I believe that Jameis Winston, if given the right set of circumstances, and again, look, Bruce Arians was not Richie Kotite. Okay, this was a guy who has gotten the most. Just ask, just ask someone like a Carson Palmer. Bruce Arians is a guy who knows how to coach quarterbacks. He's a quarterback guy. One of the main reasons he was brought into the Tampa Bay organization and hired as the head coach because his because of his ability to work with quarterbacks. And we saw what Jameis Winston did for him. Right? He was like, "Man, get this motherfucker out of here before this guy completely destroys my reputation." So a guy who's worked with Carson Palmer, a guy who's worked with Ben Roethlisberger and such, hey, a guy who got the most out of Charlie Batch when he was the quarterback for Pittsburgh when Roethlisberger was was injured. I mean, this was a situation where, man, 35, 35 turnovers. Can't do that. Can't have that. So the question is like, man, is this just, am I wrong here? Is Jameis Winston, is that who he is? Look, since he came into the league in 2015, he's led the league in interceptions, as I mentioned before. He's thrown 88 interceptions since 2015. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Five seasons, throwing 88 interceptions. Phillip Rivers is next with 76. And then you got Ryan Fitzpatrick and Ben Roethlisberger with 60 and Eli Manning coming in fifth with 59. So Winston is throwing interceptions, and he's throwing them at an alarming high rate, which is not even close. Especially when you speak about Phillip Rivers. He's no longer with the Los Angeles Chargers. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's bounced around from team to team. Roethlisberger is still with the, with the um, Pittsburgh Steelers. And Eli Manning finally retired with the New York Giants. Thank goodness. Maybe it was a situation where it was kind of like, look, do you want to retire or do you want to be released? If you're the Giants and Eli Manning having that conversation. So, still think for Winston... The potential is there. I saw him, man. I saw him play against the Los Angeles Rams on the road, a game where Tampa Bay won 55 to 40. I saw when he was 28 for 41 for 385 yards, four touchdowns, only one interception with a passer rating of 120. He was brilliant in that game. He was absolutely fantastic in that game. The game against Denny Dimes, where they lost 32-31, where uh, uh, Jones drove the uh, team down and kicked a game-winning field goal against Tampa Bay on, on uh, at, at Tampa. Winston was 23 to 37, 380 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, had a passer rating of 112. I saw him this season, this past season, against the Detroit Lions on the road where Tampa Bay won 38 to 17. I saw the man complete 28 of 42 passes for 458 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. Had a passer rating of 124. This is a guy who, while he was throwing a lot of interceptions, while he was losing fumbles, while he was doing all of those things that made you just want to just scream, shout, and, 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 and get angry all about, eight times, eight times last season, Jameis had a passer rating over 100. Eight times. So I guess it's feast or famine with this guy. Either he's going to be a franchise quarterback or else he's going to be a guy who doesn't even belong in the league because of the 
mental mistakes that he makes in the football field. And look, I've heard the Dan Orlovskis of the world who know the quarterback position much more than I am, much more than I do, is talk about some of his deficiencies and talk about how, you know, in a certain situation, he kind of panics. He doesn't go through his progressions and everything. I still think that Jameis Winston deserves a chance to be a starting quarterback. Not given the, not, not given the, not given the starting quarterback position, but given a chance to compete for a starting quarterback position. But it's going to take one hell of a coach, man, to try to get some of that nonsense that he's doing out of his game. But in my opinion, look, maybe he could serve as a backup for a year or two. Maybe he could do what Derek Teddy Bridgewater did in terms of being a backup for a couple of years, kind of sit back, relax, kind of learn some things, and then move on, cash in. I mean, maybe this is a situation where he goes to maybe Jacksonville, replaces the starter there, and maybe does well, and then moves on to something else. I don't know. I don't know. But if I'm a team, I sign James to a two- or three-year contract. I really do. I bring him in to be the backup quarterback. If I'm someone like the Pittsburgh Steelers, yeah. I signed Jameis to a two- or three-year quarterback, two years guaranteed, one option, and then I let him sit and I let him learn. And at least, you know what? You can say what you want to about Jameis Winston. You can't make the argument that the backup quarterbacks for Pittsburgh last year were better. And we're talking about a guy in Jameis Winston, as I mentioned before, who turned the ball over 35 times through interceptions or fumbles. But I bet you, you ask every Steeler fan out there with a brain in his head, would you rather have Jameis Winston or Duck Hodges, Mason Rudolph, or Paxton Lynch? I'm quite sure the majority of them would say, give me Jameis Winston. And with the injury history and the age of Ben Roethlisberger, again, I'll say it again. If I'm the Pittsburgh Steelers, I make that play. Not to be your starting quarterback, but I make that play to secure the services of Jameis Winston. <laughs> Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world. Mainly speaking about the NFL, it's really the only thing that's going on. A little bit later on, my next podcast, I'm going to delve, I'm going to dive back into the NBA. Everybody's talking about the owners want the NBA to start soon and everything like that. Hold on, Hoss, hold on. Let's just see what's going to be happening with the world that we're living in today. But I'm also wondering with the NBA... If, say, for instance, if the league gets canceled because of this coronavirus, you know what? There's an opportunity, and I've always felt this, that they should permanently, permanently move the NBA schedule. And I don't know exactly how you do this because as of right now, when you speak about the NBA, the season starts in October. So you have October, November, December, January, February, March, and then a little bit of April before the playoffs start. You move on until April, May, June. So basically, you're looking at around nine months, August, September, October. So if the season ends, say, for instance, the NBA Finals are over in June, then you have July, then you have August, then you have September, and then people start up again. But I'm just thinking to myself, you know what? There should be a situation where if I'm the NBA, if I'm I'm these owners, and really, if I'm the TV, uh, their TV partners, I say, man, this is going to be a great time for the NBA to move its schedule from 
October, near the end of October, they should be starting these games, say, like in December. The first game, the opening day should happen on Christmas Day, really, because if you think about it, for the NBA, the season really begins on Christmas Day. That's the first time the whole during the entire season that the NBA doesn't compete with anybody. It doesn't compete with college football. It doesn't compete with the NFL. I mean, does it really even compete with hockey? But for the most part, it's the showcase for the NBA. You get your LeBron James on there. You get your reigning MVP on there. If he's healthy, you get your Steph Curry in there. You get your Giannis Antetokounmpo in there. It's the showcase. It's your showcase day. Why don't you, if you're the NBA, why don't you start the league in on, on Christmas Day? That would be an awesome tradition. Then you go through January, February. The NBA is still the only sport that recognizes Black History Month. Surprise, surprise, hockey doesn't. Oh, I wonder why. Oh, that's right, because there's barely any black players who play hockey. But, you know, you still have Black History Month. You still have Martin Luther King Day that you go ahead and celebrate. You have all of the dates that make the NBA special, makes it unique. From every other sport you have, that's still available. So you can do this. You can have the season from what? Basically, January, February, March, April, May, June, July. I mean, you start the start the playoffs in July. I know a great quote from Greg Popovich was saying, hey, look, you know, if they move the NBA, they start playing games in July, you won't see me there. <laughs> For me, the season ends in either April, May, or June, and then I'm done. If you expect me to start coaching and doing these things in July, uh, wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to be doing that type of stuff. But I'm, I'm quite sure because Coach Pop, from what I know from the outside looking in, seems to be a, a good soldier. And uh, I think that he would acquiesce and begrudgingly go ahead and do that. But uh, I, I just think it would be easier for the NBA to go up against Major League Baseball during the summer than it would be for the NBA to go up against the giant known as the NBA, the NFL. I mean, that's just, I mean, as far as, I don't even, I'm as much as I love the NBA, for me, I kind of don't like it because the NFL takes so much of my attention that while I'm following the NBA, I can't follow it as well as I like to because I'm still stuck to the NFL, especially if you're speaking about the NFL that's coming down to the wire. Now where we start talking about who teams really are going to be viable championship caliber type of squads and who's going to be doing what and then we get the playoffs and all of those type of things battling for playoff position for real so when the nf when the nba starts the nfl is really in full swing and who really cares about the first 10 15 20 25 30 games of the nba when you've got the excitement of the nfl going on with the end of the regular season and the playoffs and the wild card and the championship and the super bowl which ends the first week of february I mean, you know, just forget about it, as we say. So if I'm the NBA, man, yeah, I would rather go up in the middle of the summer against baseball, the dog days of baseball, than I would be going up against the hot time of the NFL. But I will talk about that in more detail on my next podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the NFL draft, the NFL is not changing its plans for the date of the draft. It's still going to be April 23rd, 25th, but... The league-driven fan experience events in Las Vegas, they're not going to occur. I went down to the Strip yesterday just to take a look. They're doing construction on the uh, on Las Vegas Boulevard, but for the most part, that is a ghost town. So the fan experience is not going to be happening in Vegas. The draft is going to be largely a, man, a made-for-broadcast event, and the prospect attendance and other details remain fluid. 
on all remaining pro days and visits between teams and collegiate prospects are canceled. Ouch. That is a big one. That is a huge one. So players who weren't invited to the NFL uh, scouting combine or weren't, weren't um, selected for an all-star game, they're SOL, baby. And that hurts. That hurts. That's severely going to hurt the prospects that aren't projected to be drafted in the first round or even the first day of the NFL draft. Because now what's going to be happening? you got some guys now who are going to be battling injury. you got some guys now who are going to be that we're hoping to interview well, that we're hoping to work out well at their pro day. I mean, Alabama's not going to hold their pro day. Oklahoma's not going to hold their pro day. LSU's not going to hold their pro day. Ohio State is not going to hold their pro day. So, yeah, we all know about the, the best players. We all know pretty much about the high draft picks on those squads. But what about the guys who are going to be projected to go as a fifth-round draft pick, sixth-round draft pick, guys who maybe are on the borderline teetering between being drafted and becoming unrestricted free agents? They're not going to get an opportunity to show their skills in front of NFL scouts and NFL general managers and NFL coaches. They're not going to have the opportunity to go ahead and interview with those guys face-to-face. They're not going to be able to have those opportunities. So the tape on these guys are going to be limited. So now we're talking about a situation where, hey, man, the draft becomes even harder because these teams really don't have the full understanding of who they're going to be drafting like they did before when they could go ahead and talk to these guys face-to-face and get to know them a little bit better. So let's put it this way as I take a look at this. As far as the importance of the NFL Combine, now thank goodness the NFL Combine was already done before everything else was shut down, but... You know, we're speaking about, in 2019, 337 players were invited to the scaling combine, right? 117 of those went undrafted. 33 players who weren't invited to Indianapolis were drafted. So all of these opportunities, all of these doors are closing. And if you're speaking about more, most years, the number ranges from somewhere around 30 to 40. And most are predicting around 10 to 15 non-combine players, 25 at the very best are going to be drafted this year because of lack of opportunities. So when you take a look, as I mentioned before, when you take a look at teams building championships, building dynasties, building three or four year or five year gaps where they are one of the one of the elite franchises in the NFL, it doesn't come from drafting number one draft picks year after year after year. It doesn't come from knocking the ball out of the park with free agent acquisitions. This, yes, without question, without question, those help. But where you build again, where you build the foundation of your team, that is rooted in the drafting of the late round draft pick and the signing of the unsigned free agents. And when you take a look at the NFL players who didn't get invited to the combine in past years, who didn't get that opportunity to go ahead and do pro days and everything like that. You're talking about players like Doug Baldwin and Malcolm Butler and Julian Edelman and Antonio Gates and Tyreek Hill. These guys who, what, Malcolm Butler basically saved the, saved the New England Patriots with his interception against Seattle. You're speaking about Doug Baldwin who won a championship with the Seahawks, became Russell Wilson's uh, favorite target. You're talking about Julian Edelman who became a fabulous target and the main target for Tom Brady. You're speaking about a Hall of Famer and Antonio Gates and Tyreek Hill who played an important role for Patrick Mahomes in his productivity with the Kansas City Chiefs. You know how important these face-to-face interviews, these 
these pro days, these combine days, all of these things that are getting shut down right now, you realize how important those guys are. So again, normally teams would invite players to the club's facilities for face-to-face interviews about, say for instance, somewhere around you know 15 to 20, as I mentioned before. Now what's going to be happening, with all that being eliminated, the substitute is going to have to be for these guys to interview on Skype or, or FaceTime with the players. That's not, <clears throat> that's not getting a true indication. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's not getting a true indication of um, what's going to be happening in terms of how good these guys are going to be, what they can do. So, again, it goes back to, and we, we speak, and I speak about, <clears throat> this is just based on if the season is going to open on time. When you take a look at the teams who are going to be viable, who are going to be competing for championships next season, to me it comes down to which one of these guys, which one of these organizations had the least amount of turnover. And I'm not just speaking about with the players. I'm also speaking about with the head coaches, the offensive coordinators. Which team is going to be coming back more intact than the others? Because, again, if we're speaking about a situation where there's going to be no OTAs, there's going to be no... Uh, training camps or anything like that during the summer, no mandatory voluntary mini camps. The teams that are going to be bringing in all of these new guys, especially from the quarterback position, speaking about Tampa Bay and Tom Brady, how quickly are they going to be able to function and how quickly are they going to be able to gel and mesh to get these guys going to be viable offenses or viable defenses? Tom Brady doesn't have the opportunity to because of the virus, to go ahead and say, you know what, even though the facilities might be shut down, hey, man, I'm going to invite all of these guys in terms of my weapons, my potential, and my um, uh, wide receivers and tight end. I'm going to invite all these guys to go to Cabo with me. Or I'm going to have these guys come to my place, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to have some fun, and we're going to work out together, and we're going to throw the football around, and we're going to you know get on the field, whether it be on a high school football field or whatever we're going to get out there and we're going to run past routes and i'm just going to just start the basics of just throwing throwing to these guys and seeing what they like and seeing where they like the ball and this that and the other that is now because of the coronavirus and some of the restrictions that we've been put on as far as everyday life is concerned that's not going to be happening now that is not going to be happening so if you're in a situation where you're bringing in these guys, what does it mean? So for me, a team like the Buffalo Bills, for instance, who really didn't lose that much, much the only main um, the only main move that they made during the offseason was to bring in Stephon Diggs. Okay, that's fine. That's cool. But, you know, for the most part, the offense returns intact. The defense returns intact. The offensive line returns intact. There's no, there hasn't been any changes. The offense is still going to remain the same. The terminology on both the offense and defensive side of the football is going to remain the same. So, yeah, man, it's uh, this whole thing has got us just all, just, just all wigged out, man. Just all wigged out. I mean, I don't know what's going to be happening, but I, I know one thing: that the teams that uh, the teams that are put together well and not losing anybody or not losing a whole bunch of folks, coaches. Or players, right now, they're at the front of the line in terms of who's going to be reaching the finish line of that Super Bowl at the prize.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, this DeAndre Hopkins deal, man, is still going on. Now you see this tweet that uh, Deshaun Watson put down talking about this uh, this uh, lyric by Drake and Emotionless talking about, I can't believe that uh, basically what he's saying is kind of fucked up that uh, Bill O'Brien traded my main wide receiver, my go-to guy. I don't know how this relationship lasts if you really think about it. I don't know. It's amazing to me after everything that went down that Bill O'Brien still has a job. It's unbelievable to me. He's got to give up one or the other, don't you think? If you're the owner of the Houston Texans, don't you say, hey, you know what, we've got some good stuff going on about you in terms of your head coaching ability, but this nonsense with you being a GM, man, it's got to end. It's got to stop. Put it to bed right now. There's so few coaches who can do something like this. Not everybody can be like Bill Belichick or one of these type of guys who can assume both the player personnel role in the head coaching job because as we always know, the worst thing that a head coach can do is become a general manager. It's almost like if you're on trial, the worst thing that a defendant can do is act as his own attorney. And when you're a coach and you try to do both jobs, which is to buy the groceries and cook the food, inevitably it ain't going to work. It's not going to work. And Bill O'Brien doesn't have the pedigree. We've seen this before. Coming from the New England Patriots, the fact that Bill Belichick will usually trade a guy a year or two early before trading him or trying to get rid of him a year or two late. But in this situation, man, you don't be trading someone like a DeAndre Hopkins who's on a contract-friendly deal. And the fact that he's Deshaun Watson's go-to guy. And the fact that you don't even seem to have a plan B in terms of who's going to be replacing an adequate replacement for DeAndre Hopkins. And you can sit there and talk about, well, in a couple of years, DeAndre was going to be asking for a new deal or there was a possibility that DeAndre could hold out and ask for a new deal and ask for the type of money that, uh, that, that Michael Thomas of the New Orleans Saints or Odell Beckham Jr. of the New York Giants is getting and that's a wide receiver. You don't want to give him the money that the Atlanta Falcons gave Julio Jones or any type of... You can, you can come up with any type of those excuses on why you were going you were going to go ahead and trade DeAndre Hopkins or you eventually went ahead and traded DeAndre Hopkins. But here's the deal. If you have to pay DeAndre Hopkins, Michael Thomas type of money, you do it. If you have to pay DeAndre Hopkins, Odell Beckham Jr. money, you do it. Because we're talking about a guy in terms of valuability is concerned. He's probably at the top two, top three most valuable wide receivers in the league, especially when you talk about the quarterback you have on your team. You don't have a grizzled veteran like Drew Brees. You don't have someone like Tom Brady who at this stage of stages of their career can adjust to a new wide receiver or take chicken manure and turn it into chicken salad. Deshaun Watson maybe in five, six, seven, eight years might turn into that type of quarterback. But there's no quarterback with the amount of experience that Deshaun that Deshaun Watson has as an NFL quarterback is going to come in there and all of a sudden say, okay, we can go ahead and trade to DeAndre Hopkins, get nothing back in return for a wide receiver to give him some help. And Deshaun, Deshaun, um, Deshaun Watson can go ahead and take Kenny Stills and the other guys that we have on our team and turn them into elite top two or three or four or five wide receivers in the league. Deshaun Watson can't do that. You know, and to come to think of it, no longer can Tom Brady do that. Maybe five, six, seven years ago he could. Maybe three or four or five years ago he could. But the Tom Brady at 43 years old, he can't do that now. Drew Brees really can't do that now. Maybe the only person who has the ability to do that, maybe. And this still, this is still up for debate. The only person, the only quarterback in this league 
who could possibly do what Bill O'Brien, I guess, is asking Deshaun Watson to do, possibly, maybe, is Patrick Mahomes. And again, the jury is still on it, even as of this stage of his career, that he can take an average receiver and make him great. Deshaun Watson, how in the world are you going to break up that duo? And I'm sorry, but the Houston Texans, if it came down to a personality conflict, and it came down between Deshaun, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, and Bill O'Brien, you tell Bill O'Brien either you become buddy buddies with the guy or you form a truth with the guy, or, you, or you're gone. Find somewhere else to coach. Because in a situation like this, man, you leave that, du- you leave that duo alone. You leave it alone. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So did you see this nonsense about Peyton Manning now has turned down the offers to do Monday Night Football that uh, ESPN was going to offer him something like, you know, $17, $18 million because their number one deal, their number one goal for ESPN was to go ahead and get themselves Tony Romo. But Tony Romo decided that he was going to Resigned and stayed with Jim Nance and CBS. And CBS said thank you very much and gave him a boatload of money to stay. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of what, 16, 17, 18 million dollars. Who knows, man? It's not my money and it doesn't count against any team salary cap. So, why do I care how much the man makes? But uh, basically, it was a lot of money. So, ESPN was like, damn, we got to get someone who can maybe not reach the levels of. Tony Romo, in terms of being a analyst on the um, for the NFL games, seems like Tony Romo's a natural, just a natural for that type of thing. I've listened to him, and I, I like him. I, I don't know if he's the bee's knees, but you know, I, I'm, when it comes to these play-by-play guys, for the most part, these color commentator color commentator guys, you know, just just don't fuck up. You know, that's all I ask. But it's interesting. You know, you can have a you can have a color analyst or a guy who's just going to be analyzing the game. You can have somebody in that role who can, for me at least, make it almost unbearable to watch a game. But no one can ever be as far as going over the top. Dick Vitale goes way over the top for me because he doesn't sit there and call games. Sometimes I think Dick Vitale, and this might be because of his passion and whatever, but sometimes I think Dick Vitale wants to become a character of himself just so, I don't know, the baby and slam bam jam and all this kind of nonsense. It's like, all right, man, I've been hearing that bullshit for 20 years, man. Can we can we just stick to the game and then he'll veer off and go into some other topic while the game is going on? And, you know, I'm like, who cares? So, I mean, there's, there's certain broadcasters, there's certain, you know, guys that are being employed right now doing football and basketball that, Kind of turned me off baseball. I mean, these guys on ESPN and Tim Kirchin and Eduardo Perez and these guys. and All these guys want to do during the game is tell jokes. They want to tell jokes and tell stories and make each other laugh. I mean, just guys, just shut the fuck up and call the game. Call balls and strikes. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't give a fuck about what Tim Kirchin did in a, in, a, in, a, in a hotel room or at an airport back in 1995. I don't give a fuck about Eduardo Perez playing a joke on one of his teammates. I don't give a fuck, man. Not interested. Who cares? You're there to call the game. If you're going to do sports talk radio, if you want to do a podcast where you're just shooting, sitting around shooting the shit and that's what your podcast is all about, fine. That's the correct format. That's the correct time to do something like that. But when I'm watching a baseball game and, you know, they're giving cutaways of Boog Shambi and Tim Kirchin and Eduardo Perez and I guess some other guy who's in the booth and they're cutting away from the game to show these four clowns up there laughing and joking and telling bad jokes and jokes I don't understand and stories that I have no interest in that aren't funny that take away from the game. Guys, just 
do me a favor. Shut the fuck up and call the game that's on the field, please. If you want to sit there and you want to start analyzing, I thought that with Tim Kirchner, who has a knowledge of baseball, who has, who's very knowledgeable when it comes to baseball, Eduardo Perez, who has played the game, so he can bring some insight into the game also. I thought that's what these guys were here for, to talk about the game that's being played on the field and that baseball is so slow and so boring Try to do something which somehow, someway equates it to the game. Don't give them any fucking stories. They're, they're not a comedian. This ain't Showtime at the Apollo. This ain't Amateur Night. Okay, this ain't America Idol, American Idol. This ain't none of that nonsense. Ryan Seacrest is not going to be judging you for your jokes, for your stories. You're not entertaining. Focus on the game. Let the game be the entertainment, not some bullshit nonsense like, well, you know, it's kind of like sitting at a bar and listening to your friends talk. I don't want to go to a bar and listen to Eduardo Perez and Tim Kirch and talk baseball. I want to watch the fucking game. And to help me enjoy the game, I want to have Eduardo Perez and Tim Kirch and the Boog Shambi explain to me what's going on during the game. Give me some insights in the players on the field right now. Give me some insights on what's going on in the game itself. When these guys start venturing into... Other nonsense, just like during a game, is like click. Watching a nine-inning baseball game, watching a nine-inning baseball game through four innings, three innings is hard enough. I got to put up with those fucking yahoos who want to sit there and make each other laugh and giggle like like they're two schoolgirls or three schoolgirls. Unbelievable. So my point is, through all of that diatribe, which I just yammered out, is the fact that Peyton Manning turned down the opportunity to be in the booth of Monday Night Football. I'm thinking that if you're someone like a Peyton Manning, I mean, not saying that being a play-by-play guy or being in the booth and doing Monday Night Football is slumming it, but I think Peyton Manning has always been a guy, in my mind, who would probably go on to do bigger and better things than just be the next John Madden or be the next Tony Romo or just be a guy who's going to be what Troy Aikman does. I thought, I'm thinking that possibly, maybe, that Peyton Manning is the type of guy who might become a GM, might become an owner. He might become something in terms of outside of the realm of football, could do something else. He could become a, a public speaker. He could be a Fortune 500 guy. He could start his own business. He could maybe do what Roger Stallback did in terms of leaving when he left the game of football and he started his own real estate company and he built it and built it and it was worth, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And now, you know, Roger Stallback being Roger Stallback is the man that's the king in the city of Dallas and the state of Texas and probably in the Southwest. So I think with the intelligence and I think with other things that Peyton Manning possesses, I think that maybe he might want to go in that direction. I think it might be for him settling, I would say, if he decided that he wanted to take his talents and just become a broadcaster or do the color commentary on Monday Night Football. And you also have to deal with the nonsense of, okay, if Peyton Manning is going to go in there, we don't know how good of a color commentator Peyton Manning is going to be. We don't know. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we see, we've seen his commercials. We've seen him on Saturday Night Live. We've seen him host the ESPYs. We've seen him do a lot of things where he's shown his personality, and it looks like he does have really good personalities, but a guy... When you're doing color commentary, I mean, are we going to try to be too funny? Are we going to try to be too serious? I mean, it's a very delicate balance. That's very hard to do. That is very hard to do. I couldn't do it. So for those who do it and are good at it, uh, especially the ex-ball players who go ahead and get in the booth and do it very, very well, hey, more power to them, man. That is really, really hard to do. So if you're someone like a Peyton Manning who, again, is if he did take the job, 
Monday Night Football, he's going to be scrutinized, and he's going to be scrutinized at a higher level, say, if he just wanted to get into broadcasting or get into color commentary and start at the bottom in terms of maybe doing like a Arizona Cardinal, Arizona Cardinal, I don't know, name another bad team, an Arizona Cardinal-Washington football game or maybe something like the Tampa, well, Tampa Bay is going to be good now because they got Tom Brady. But if you're looking to do like a Detroit Lion, <laughs> she's a Detroit Lion-Arizona Cardinal game where no one is watching at 4 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, that's normally when you work your way up to get to the primetime games, to get to the Monday Night Football booth. That's normally how the transition started. That's normally how the journey started. For those who wanted to get into the business as far as being a color commentary guy, you get in at the bottom of the game, you make your mistakes in front of not too many people are listening and to, in front of a game that not too many people are interested in and then you move up and then you move up and then you move up and up and up and up and eventually you'll get to the point where Troy Aikman is and Tony Romo is, even though he, he leapfrog all of that and you'll get to the point where you're good enough to be calling the Super Bowl and calling the big game. So I thought it was ESPN maybe reaching a little bit. Uh, you know, I, it's it's to me, it's, if there's a good game, there's a good game. But I understand that ESPN and Monday Night Football, they're partners. So it's almost like, you know what, we got to have a really good product in terms of the booth, in terms of the play-by-play guy, in terms of the you know, color commentator guy. We've got to have a good duo up there. We've got to put on a good product for football so the NFL can give us really good games for Monday Night Football because as of right now, the best games for the week are Sunday, Sunday nights. And that's Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. Collinsworth who does an unbelievable job and Chris Collins who paid his dues to get to the point where he's working the best game of the week with Al Michaels, a legend in the business. So, I just say, look, first of all, get rid of Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarlane. McFarlane. Again, it's, it's a hard job to do. It really is a hard job to do. But those guys really aren't good at it, <clears throat> in, in my opinion. But just get two guys in there that are solid. Now, I mean, Sean McDonough was really good. Now, he didn't work well with John Gruden. But you get someone like a Sean McDonough, who I think is very good. People are talking about. There's a noise going around that possibly they could be maybe pulling someone like a Chris Fowler and a Kurt. Kurt Herbstreit from the college football game of the week and bring them over to do Monday Night Football. There might have been some talk that maybe they'll go with someone like a Steve Levy or someone like a Brian Greasy or someone like a Lewis Riddick. I'm not a really big fan of Steve Levy because I think he jokes and clowns too much. I think, again, he's one of these guys who likes to use the game for him to tell the stupid-ass jokes and and laugh at his dumb-ass jokes. But I think Brian Greasy is very good. I think Todd Blackledge does a very good job. I think Lewis Riddick does a very good job. So if they're looking for at least a color guy in terms of a play, you know, in terms of doing the color play-by-play, play, I think Blackledge, I think Greasy, I think Lewis Riddick would, would do a very good job, and I think Sean McDonough would do a very good job also. So those are just some names thrown out there. But, yes, Peyton Manning said no thank you to the opportunity of possibly dealing with the NFL and dealing with Monday Night Football being the play-by-play guy. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this. Let me end. No, let me end with uh, Rudy Gobert. Didn't get into some NBA news. Dealing with the coronavirus, as we all know. Well, he tweeted this past Sunday that he's lost his sense of smell and taste. 
while battling the virus. He asked if others had experienced the same thing. And according to a re report in the New York Times, British medical experts identify the loss of ability to smell and taste as possible signs of the coronavirus, even when no other symptoms like fever, cough, or shortness of breath are being experienced. Yikes, man, like I said before, y'all, take care of yourselves. Please stay six feet away from each other, six inches, six inches away. Stay indoors if you need to, because I've said this before, and I'll say it again, man. I don't know if I have the, I don't know if I have the virus. I don't think so, but I'm not showing any symptoms. And I've been reading a lot of stuff. I've been reading about, now you're talking about folks who are not elderly, folks who don't have any other preconceived uh, conditions. We're talking about, I've been reading stories about folks in their 20s and their 30s who work out six days a week, who eat healthy, who live a healthy lifestyle, who are coming down with the coronavirus and are battling and are waging a war to try to survive against this virus. And I've also heard st stories about, you know, people come in and say, I want to get tested for the virus. And the doctors or the folks ask them, do you have a cough? Do you feel cold? Do you have a cold coming on? Do you have any flu-like symptoms? And if the answer is no, 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 they say, well, then you probably don't have it. Come back if you have those symptoms. Well, again, According to the medical reports, I believe that you could be having the symptoms, you could be atypical and not show any type of the symptoms, but you could be carrying the coronavirus. And as they learn more about what's happening with this virus, with this deal that's going on, who knows what they're going to find out next? Who absolutely positively knows? Again, for the most part, many people thought, no big deal, this happens in elderly people, this, that, and the other. Now you see reports that the next outbreak could be happening in New Orleans, Louisiana, in that area. Why? Because a bunch of fucking dumbasses decided that they were going to ignore what the experts, the medical experts were saying, and they went out and party in Mardi Gras, during Mardi Gras. So guess what happens when you have a whole bunch of people congregating in one place with a virus like this that spreads through contact and through close range of folks being around each other? Well, guess what, you fucking idiots? You came back with the fucking disease. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. I need to get back to work. We need to do something to try to get ourselves to where we can improve our qualities of lives. I miss my buddies. I miss hanging out. I miss eating and sitting at a restaurant. I miss sports. I miss all of these things. So, yeah, it perturbs me. It annoys me. It upsets me when I'm trying to do all that I can to go through the pain and suffering and the uncomfortability of doing what I need to do now to make sure that the short-term pain doesn't turn into long-term dire consequences by listening to these folks and doing what we're supposed to be doing. But yet and still, we still have the privileged, ignorant dumbasses who are going down to Mardi Gras, who are conjugating in large places and contracting the virus, which is delaying the possibility for us to return to a more normal life than we did two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. So please, you fucking idiots, try to do the right thing and listen to what folks are saying. Or else, you know what, if they do martial law on you dumbasses, turn it, turn this shit into uh, Italy. I saw something on Twitter where there was a guy walking around Italy and uh, the police or somebody came up to him and beat the shit out of him. <laughs> You're supposed to be in the house. You're supposed to be in the house, my man. What are you doing walking the street? Nice stick, bang, bang, boom. Hey, man, the situation where if, if Governor Steve Sisolak was sitting there saying, you know what, we're going to be putting out folks, the police are going to be coming out. If they see anybody, if we have to have a curfew at 8 p.m., then so be it. 
if there's a situation where the police see folks congregating where there's more than 10 people or 11 people or if they're not abiding by what the experts are saying, hey man, tase them, beat them, do something. Because again, I'm sitting in here, I'm making the sacrifice. I know a lot of people are making the sacrifices of trying to do what the experts are saying, trying to see what we can do to expedite the situation so we can get back to living a more normal life. I don't like sitting in the house 24 hours a day. I don't like not working. I don't like not getting a paycheck. I don't like knowing where, not knowing where my mortgage check is going to go or where my mortgage money is going to happen. Or I don't like any of that nonsense, man. Before I lost, uh, before I stopped working at Clark Kelly, man, making money, I was on a roll, baby. I mean, I was on a roll. And that roll was going to last me another week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks or so. If now the virus shuts down the school district and takes away a huge part of my income, yeah, man, I'm fucking pissed, but you got to do what you got to do. I'd rather sacrifice and be out up the creek and not know what's going to happen to me for the next two or three months than say, keep doing what I'm doing and then suffer for the next eight or nine months. So, you know, we got to sacrifice. I sacrifice, you sacrifice, we all sacrifice. And when we see folks who are too damn selfish to sacrifice for the betterment of Humanity, yeah, it pisses me off. It pisses me to flip off. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Let me end with this by Georgetown Hoyas. Haven't talked about them too much. Finished the season 15 and 17 and the season on a seven-game losing streak. Now, you notice I did say that when the Hoyas lost to Providence, 73-63, after they basically ran out of gas after playing well for the amount of bodies that they had and the circumstances that they were faced with, I said that, you know what, I wouldn't be surprised if Georgetown doesn't win another game. And sure enough, they lost um, most of their games. But if you take out the game against Creighton, which they got blown out on the road, which they always do, if you take out the game against Marquette at on the road, Marquette, that was a revenge game from what Georgetown did last year, going up and beating them on the road, and severely at the time putting a damper on their NCAA tournament hopes, even though Marquette finally didn't make it into the tournament. But that was a revenge game when you knew that Marquette was going to smoke their asses, which exactly that they did. But you take a look, five of the seven losses that Georgetown had to lose that they were in the season were against projected tournament teams. And if we're speaking about, you know, after the explanations about losing at Marquette, and losing at Creighton, you take a look at the other five games. They lost at DePaul, 74-68. You know, you're not supposed to be losing to DePaul, but the way they were underhanded, undermanned in that game, understood. They lost to Providence again, 73-63 at home. They lost to Xavier, 66-63, when Najee Marshall hit a contested step-back three-point shot with about, you know, two or three seconds left. Then they lost to Villanova, 70-69, on a bogus foul call, an even more bogus goaltending call with Georgetown up to Samuels made the free throw, and they won it by one. And then in the Big East tournament, they were playing well. They were up by 15, but St. John's went on a 25-0 run to end the game, in which St. John's won 75-62. I remember watching that game, not being happy, but also following the comments on Twitter by folks and Georgetown fans, Georgetown basketball fans, and the amount of ridiculousness and stupidity and ignorance that was being shown during that time. Now, look, a lot of that was passionate. A lot of that was 
emotional anger, hopefully. But, you know, during the game and during after the game, oh, man, I cannot believe that Georgetown lost the game. It was Patrick Ewing's fault. That was coaching malpractice. That was coaching malfeasance. How could he do something like this? He's a terrible coach. He sucks. He needs to be fired. He'll never get anywhere. This is John Thompson's fault. Oh, we're always going into the John Thompson family, and that's the reason why Georgetown has sucked ever since John Thompson Jr. left. This is a joke. This is a sham. This is bullshit. Fuck, but shut the fuck up, you idiots. Listen, man, Omir Yurt 7 had nothing to do with Georgetown losing that lead. Georgetown was going to lose that game because basically they ran out of gas and Terrell Allen had cramps. All this nonsense about, oh my God, how could he have played Yurt 7 for the last 15 minutes of the second half when he hadn't played in so long and Kudus Wahab was doing great? This is bullshit. This is unbelievable. Patrick Ewing doesn't know what he's doing. He's a terrible coach. He needs to be fired. Hashtag. Pat must go. All of this stupidity. Can I educate you idiots on something who are Georgetown fans who hold the same type of passion about the team that I do? Let me explain something to you, man. Georgetown did not lose that game because Omir Yurt 7 played. Because if you remember when Terrell Allen went down with leg cramps with about, what, six minutes left to go in the game and Georgetown was up by 11. Oh, that's right. Georgetown was still up by 11. So when O'Meara was in the game, when Georgetown had that lineup of Pickett, Yurt Seven, Blair, Moosley, and Allen, they were holding a double-digit lead. This wasn't a situation where all of a sudden you took out Wahab, put in Yurt Seven, and then, and then the lead just exapor- uh, uh, evaporated. They had the lead from 15 to 11. I mean, St. John's made a quick little spurt, but then Georgetown responded, got the lead back up to double digits, their point guard went down, and that was all there was to it. And to sit there and talk about, oh, well, you know, your seven was a sleeve on defense and this, that, and the other. Hey, St. John's had a couple of wide-open three-pointers from, from way back. There wasn't too much inside interior scoring. O'Meara wasn't letting his man dominate him for the most part. And to sit there and think that the only reason or the main reason why they lost was because Kudus Mahab didn't play. Now, I will say this. Would I have played Wahab a little bit more in the second half? Yeah, probably. But as Patrick Ewing said, hey, it was winning time. It was time to go. He slowed the game down so he was going to play more half-court basketball. So if he was going to play more half-court basketball, that means getting the ball to Yurt 7 was one of the priorities. Yurt 7 was playing pretty well. Yurt 7 wasn't messing up the offense. What happens was Georgetown ran out of gas. Allen and Mosley just started saying, fuck it. They started launching bad threes and missing. It happens. They ran out of gas. And oh, by the way, Javon Blair went, what, three for 16? And you're going to say that the entire reason why they lost was because of Yurt 7? Get the fuck out of here. Absolutely, unbelievably ridiculous. Now, that game is long gone, and now the season for college basketball and and everything is awash because of the virus. But I just wanted to get that off my chest because I spent a good portion of that time after that game was over, sitting in my hotel room at Mesquite, in Mesquite, looking at the comments and just getting more perturbed and annoyed and angry as I heard each one of these, I read what each one of these tweets on Twitter talking about Patrick Ewing sucks, he doesn't know what he's doing, I can't believe it, oh, it's another down year for Georgetown, Patrick Ewing is not a good coach, he'll never get it done, another year without going to the NCAA, oh my goodness, another year without postseason, Patrick Ewing sucks, this is terrible. God damn, name me a fucking coach who took over a program 
which the year before was 14 and 19 and near the bottom of the Big East. Show me a fucking coach who comes in and within three years takes the team to the NCAA tournament without cheating. Show me a coach. Name me a coach. Give me an example. I kept saying it over and over again. People were up there bitching among them last year about Patrick Ewing not getting a team in the NCAA tournament. After only two years on the job, after only two years of taking over a team that was five games below 500, taking over a, a, a team, taking over a program that had nothing coming in, that had absolutely no five-star, four-star recruits, the one four-star recruit that he had, that they had decommitted when JT3 got fired, so the only two recruits that you could bring in that time with Javon Blair and Jamarco Pickett? And you're going to try to tell me within two years with a squad that finished five games under 500, within two years, his second year on the job, that Patrick Ewing, his responsibility was to get that team, that program into the NCAA tournament? <laughs> Come on, y'all, be smart. Be smart. Two and a half years into the program. These idiots are up there talking about, oh, another year without getting into the tournament. Shit, it, yeah. Yeah, it takes, it takes time to build a program. It takes time. You can't do, you can't go ahead and get into the tournament on a regular basis after two seasons. You can't do it. It takes time to build, especially when what happened with the transfers and what happened with the injuries. Now, if you want to whine and complain and discuss Patrick Ewing, the recruiter, because you take a look at Antoine Walker, he was dismissed from the team. Chris Sodom was dismissed from a, from the team. That was a Ewing recruit. Just talking about a Kinjo and LeBlanc and Gardner and Galen Alexander and all those guys transferred. So within three years, there's a whole bunch of people on that team that have transferred. Now, if you want to talk about that, Grayson Carter transferred, but he was a guy that wasn't getting any time. And he transferred to a school that was a mid-major, low-mid-major school. So maybe this was a situation where he found out that he was in over his head and he wanted to go somewhere where he could play at a lower conference. So he did that. So, but for the most part, if you're talking about Akinjo and you talk about LeBlanc, Akinjo was a four-star recruit. LeBlanc was a top 90 recruit. And Galen Alexander was a JUCO guy. And Myron Gardner was a guy who came out of a really good program. Chris Sodom was a project, seven foot three. And Antoine Walker, I believe, was a holdover from the JT3 days. Now, if you want to sit there and have a discussion about what type of players Patrick Ewing is recruiting to where there's a good amount of players who are transferring, if you want to discuss that and talk about that being the weakness of Patrick Ewing, I'll definitely, I'll be, I will definitely hear that. I will definitely respect you on that. If you're going to be questioning some of the talent that he's brought in that's leaving and can this be sustainable, I mean, if you're going to be going in and having to rebuild every year because players are transferring, well, yeah, that's a problem. That is a real problem. That's an area for concern, but that really hasn't been a problem yet. That hasn't been a pattern yet to where I think we should have a serious discussion about possibly two or three years down the road because of that Patrick Ewing losing, losing his job. Now, I understand that coming in the next season, he's going to have to rebuild again. This was supposed to be the year 
that he was supposed to get into the NCAA tournament. This was the year that I was predicting. This is the year that I was expecting. This was the year where the realistic goals and expectations should have been Georgetown getting into the NCAA tournament. And anything less would have been a disappointment. With the team that they had coming back, with all the players intact, with the roster that they had that went over to the Bahamas, if that team would have stayed intact for the entire year, even with the injuries to LeBlanc, excuse me, even with the injuries to McClung, even with the injuries to Yurt Seven, I still would have said, you know what? There was still enough talent on that team that the expectations should have been NCAA tournament or this is a bad season or this is a negative season or this is a season that disappointed, that didn't live up to expectations. But shit happens, man. And I thought that Ewing handled himself extremely well after everything went down, especially again, even with the defections, even with Gardner and Alexander and Akinjo and LeBlanc, even with those guys leaving, the real downfall, downfall, the real beginning of the end happened against American when McClung was hit in the eye. And then he missed a couple of games. He missed the first two or three games of the Big East regular season against Providence on the road and against Seton Hall on the road. Those were tough. And that started Georgetown off at an 0-2 start. But even then, Georgetown was still in, in position 24, 25 games into the season. But when McClung hurt his foot, plantar fasciitis, I guess that's what the cause of the injury was, or I guess that's the reason for him not playing, or McClung not playing for the rest of the season. And then your seven twists his ankle against DePaul, and you want to sit there and say that, you know, Mosley was dealing with a bunch of injuries and he still played and that's the reason why Yurt Seven quit on the team or he's soft. Or I don't I don't know. I don't know I don't know. I've never spoke to Omir Yurt Seven, neither of you. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, neither are you, so I don't know how to assess sprained ankles. Sometimes sprained ankles you can come back and play within the next game or two or three. Sometimes sprained ankles linger a lot longer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm definitely not going to sit there and start tearing down the guy because I feel or we feel or you feel that he should have got back on the court sooner. You don't know the situation with Omir Year 7, so why are you speculating? So why are you making these type of assumptions that he's soft and he should be playing? Based on what? Based on what? Have you seen him practice? Have you been to, I mean, did you talk to the trainer? Based on what? So the main thing with Omir Year 7, hey man, get your degree and move on to better things. And that was student athletes are supposed to be doing anyway. Jacob Mosley is going to get his degree in finance and move on and become a real productive member of society. So he didn't make the NCAA tournament. So he didn't win a Big East game in the tournament. That's fine. That's okay. Guess what? 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now, none of that will mean jack shit. <laughs> Jacob Mosley is doing great. He's got a lovely wife. He's got a lovely kids. He's got, he's making a strong presence in the community. He's a positive role model for his kids. If he's doing well, if he's an upstanding citizen, I don't think Jake and Mosley is going to be walking around the streets all depressed and upset and becoming an alcoholic and a drug addict and being woe with me because when I played basketball for Georgetown, I didn't get an opportunity to play in the NCAA basketball tournament or get a chance to win a game in the Big East Conference Tournament. When Jagan is 40, 45, 50, 60, I don't think that he's going to be carrying around that bitterness. So, you know, the main thing with Jagan, who seems to be a great guy, he's going to get that degree. He's going to be a productive member of the society, and good for him. Good for him. So, so don't don't be sitting there. And you can say, well, Wendell, you're judging Jagan mostly from afar. This is what I'm talking about. But don't be sitting there judging Omir Yurt Seven 
toughness. And don't be questioning his tough toughness when you don't know anything about what's going on with that situation for him to miss as many games as he did. So moving to the offseason, man. You know, again, I mentioned before about uh, Georgetown starting over. I mean, this was really going to be the year because you were expecting the fact that Akinjo McClung and LeBlanc going into their junior year, you were expecting these guys to maturate to where they were going to be potential first-team all-biggies, you know, team members. If they followed the if they followed the progression of Akinjo being named the Big East Freshman of the Year, him, LeBlanc, and McClung being on the first team, you were expecting to see the rise and improvement in their sophomore year, and then in their junior year and senior year, they were going to kick ass in Georgetown. Hopefully, expectedly, was going to become one of the top 15, 20 teams in the country by the 2021 season and beyond. But things like that didn't happen. So they're starting over again somewhat. If you take a look, I'm taking a look right now, and, you know, who knows what's going to be happening. But as of right now, I'm predicting a starting lineup of Tyler Beard, the freshman out of Detroit, Matt McClung. Hopefully he comes back from his plantar fasciitis injury. Jamarco Pickett, Pickett, maybe he comes back. 10 pounds heavier, heavier with a better jump shot and a better handle. Jamari Sibley, the freshman, the four-star freshman from Wisconsin, he comes in. And also, Cutis Wahab continues his growth and his maturity to become the anchor that the team needs. And then off the bench, you have guys like Javon Blair and Timothy Ego Hefe, Kobe Clark, the freshman from St. Louis, and Dante Harris, the backup point guard, hopefully the backup point guard from Tennessee. So, looking at that team, has a shot, and you're speaking of, you're speaking about Georgetown still with three scholarship players available. They're still in line to possibly pick up some other players. A grad transfer, Frankie Collins out of Arizona, the point guard. He's still on the radar for Georgetown. There's a couple of other players and grad transfers and transfers that are looking heavily at Georgetown right now. But you know, with the coronavirus shutting everything down, it really doesn't give these guys an opportunity to. Talk to Coach Ewing face-to-face and Coach Orr. It didn't give them the opportunity to go on the campus. It didn't give them the opportunity to for Ewing to go out and to take a look because I'm quite sure the AAU circuit is going to be shut down. Not just for the spring, the EVYL is going to be shut down. I'm quite sure that over the summer, there's a great possibility that the shoe, shoe companies, their high school basketball all-star games, I know the both the Adidas and the Nike basketball AAU teams are coming out here in July. That's an everyday event. I always like to see what I can do to go over to Bishop Gorman to take a look at some of the prospects that the Georgetown Hoyers are looking at. But with this coronavirus, we don't know. That's definitely up in the air. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward exactly what's going to happen. But yeah, man, it was really good to talk about my Georgetown Hoyers because I haven't talked about them in a while. All right, so... That's it, man. We're good. We're out. Told you it was going to be a little bit shorter than normal. But uh, there's some stuff on the NBA, as I mentioned before, that I'm going to get into on my next podcast. There's just some other things that I want to discuss, maybe not sports-related, but to me, it interests me-related. So there you go. Again, be safe. Be responsible. Use common sense. Listen to those who know what the fuck they're talking about. Listen to the doctors. Listen to the experts. Let's see if we can get through this without killing each other. Let's see if we can do this without causing any type of worldwide destruction on our on our society and on our world on our world, shall we? 
Be strong, be brave, be good, be together, be unified, and uh, hopefully we'll get through this. Hopefully. Music. This is hard.